Let's take our Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a study through the life and ministry of Elisha. And we come to one of the great stories and those narratives, 2 Kings chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 19. And as I've said several times, I'll uh, be reading uh, the word Lord in small caps as the name of God, Yahweh, uh, which it is in the Hebrew. And so uh, we'll be reminded as I do that, that this is not merely a title for God. It is uh, his name, uh, the name of, of our Lord. So hear God's word, Second Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and in high favor, because by him Yahweh had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant. 
When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you have given to us these stories of your sovereign grace. We praise you, Father, for the way that you work. And we ask that you would help us to know that better and to be able to apply it in our own lives, whatever our circumstances might be. Lord, we thank you that you are a missionary God, that you bring the gospel to the lost from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We ask that you would give to us the same desire, the same passion, Lord, the same longing, that the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord, might be exalted. We thank you in his name. Amen. In 1833, a young lady named Louisa Lowry from Virginia died of tuberculosis at the age of 24. Now, that's a pretty common, ordinary thing that happened back in the 19th century. Lots of young folks died from tuberculosis. But Louisa's death was noticeable excuse me, notable, not noticeable, it was noticeable, it was also notable. In this case, she died just eight months after she had been married to a man named John Lowry. And just one month after she and John landed in Calcutta, India, to be missionaries for the Presbyterian Church there. And you see, when Louisa had agreed to marry John, she was healthy. And she knew that John wanted to be a missionary in India, and she rejoiced to go with him to bring the gospel to the lost there. Well, by the time their wedding came around, she was already beginning to, to get sick, and the doctors thought that a change in climate from America to India would actually be a good thing for her. And so they went, and in faith in the Lord, they went, and the strength the Lord provided, unfortunately, on the way over to India, Louisa only grew sicker. And so by the time she got there, she was at the point of death. She never had a chance to share the gospel to those in India. She died a month later. Uh, She, uh, again, never had that opportunity to speak words to those who were there. And her husband was deprived of his helpmeet at the very beginning of his missionary life. Uh, Yet, just like Jim Elliott's story in the 20th century, the story of Louisa Lowry in the 19th century was used by God to further his cause and to spread the fame of his name. Just as the modern missionary uh, movement was getting started there in the early 19th century, For you see, uh, like Jim Elliott, uh, Louisa Lowry's journals and letters were published in America and in Britain. And, And through those writings... God's people, in particular ladies, were strengthened in their faith, were spurred on to a deeper piety and to an even greater missionary zeal. Now, I share this story with you not only because I want you to know about Louisa Lowry, but also because I want to remind us all that it is impossible to overstate the importance of reading biographies of Christian men and Christian women from generations past. It is vital for our spiritual health, for it teaches us not only what it means to walk by faith, to walk in obedience, particularly in the times of pain and suffering, but they also teach us who our triune God 
is and how he works in and through the lives of his saints to accomplish his purposes in the world. Our text this morning is just that. It is a biography. It is a story telling us of the conversion of a Gentile named Naaman. We don't know anything else about Naaman than what we find here in this chapter. You'll have another sermon next week about Naaman in, in, in this chapter. But this is all we know about Naaman. And yet what is written here was ordained by the Lord to be sent first to the exiles in Babylon and to us. And it was written for our instruction, Paul tells us. Written so that we might know our God better. That we might know his ways with men. That we might know what it means to live by faith in him. I want you to consider with me three things that we learn about God from this story this morning. First, that his ways are strange. Second, that his ways are humbling. And third, that his ways are gracious. Let's think about those three things this morning. First, God's ways are strange. That is, he accomplishes his purposes in ways that we probably would not use if we were God. And it's a good thing we're not. We see here in this story that God brings salvation to Naaman in very strange ways through a physical disease and through a little girl who had been captured by Syria in a raid on Israel. You see Naaman, he is the Syrian general, right? He's a great man with his master. He's in high favor. He's a mighty man of valor. Right? Naaman had it all. He had high social standing. He was important. He had influence in the community. He had property. He had wealth. He had valor. He had strength. He had adulation. He had success. But he also had leprosy, right? But he was a leper, the text tells us. Now, as we saw in Luke a little while ago, that leprosy in, in the Bible is not necessarily what we think of as leprosy today, Hansen's disease. Rather, as we see from Leviticus 13, it, it covers a wide variety of skin disorders, even things like eczema and psoriasis and ringworm. Right? These skin diseases would have been visible. They would have been spreading. In some cases, they would have been infectious. Whatever it was, it was serious enough that, that Naaman wanted it gone. Right? And it was serious enough to elicit the sympathy of a little Israelite slave girl. How did this girl come to be in Naaman's house? Well, just like what happened on 10-7 when Hamas rushed into Israel and took hostages. Syria, the text tells us, rushed into Israel, captured people, including this little girl. And now here she is, a servant, a slave, serving Naaman's wife. Now try to put yourself in her sandals if you can, forcibly removed from her family, perhaps with no hope of ever being restored to them. Maybe they had died in the raid, right? We don't know. Here she is in a strange land amongst a strange people all alone. And yet, and yet the Lord uses this little girl to bring Naaman to himself. If she had not been captured, Naaman would likely have never known about Elisha. He would never experience physical or spiritual healing. How strange our God is. How strange his ways are. How strange is his providence that he would use an illness and horrible circumstances like kidnapping and slavery to bring a person to himself. How strange is our God to bring good out of evil, to overrule 
and work through such brokenness as we see here in our text. If we were God, would we choose to do it in that way? I doubt it. All right, it's counterintuitive to us, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. It's, it's not the way that, that we would want it to happen. And yet it happens all the time. It is how God regularly operates. Just think in the scriptures of the story of Joseph, how the Lord used the evil of, of Joseph's brothers desiring to sell him into slavery in Egypt all right, to bring not just a, a people all right, to, to peace, but to bring God's glory and ultimately God's conquering of the nation of Israel and bringing his people into the promised land. Or think again of the story of Jim Elliot. Now, many of you know this story, but you know, as time goes on and we get further and further away from the 50s, uh, fewer and fewer do. And so it behooves us to remember it, right? Jim Elliott and his friends, Nate Saint and, and Roger Udarian and Ed McCulley and, and Peter Fleming, they were missionaries to the Wadani Indians in Ecuador. They desired to go. They, they had several times where they were trying to communicate with these Indians, sort of dropping things from planes. And eventually they landed there on the ground and on January 8th, 1956, before they even had a chance to really share the gospel with the Waldani, they were killed by the Waldani. Now, you've heard the saying, right, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, perhaps <laughs> that saying was no truer than in the case of, of Jim Elliot and his friends, for as the story made its way back to America, Right? Some say that that martyrdom was used by God more than any other event in the, the 20th century to, to bring to the people of God an awareness of the need for the gospel to go to the lost. God used the death of Jim Elliott and his friends to motivate people to be missionaries, to pray for missionaries, to give to missionaries, particularly Jim Elliott's now ex-wife, or his, his widow, Elizabeth Elliott, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, who went back to the Wadani Indians and brought the gospel to them through their suffering. In the providence of God, men and women, boys and girls, were drawn to Jesus Christ. And yet how strange it is that God would choose to use death to spread the good news of his crucified and risen son. Or is it strange, Right? that God would use death to tell the death of his son. God's ways are strange. Now, if we know that this is how God acts, if we know that God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, then don't we learn something from the little girl's faith in this story about how to respond when God's strange ways are at work in our lives? When trial and affliction and confusion are our lot? See, this little girl, don't you wish you knew her name? She did not repay evil with evil, but rather she responded to her enemies with good. She was not glad that Naaman was suffering, but she wished that he could be healed. She knew that Elisha was God's prophet and that he could heal Naaman. Doesn't that remind us that, that she certainly would have come from a God-fearing family, how important it is for us as parents to raise our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord to prepare them for future suffering, right? To prepare them for the trials that they will have to endure down the road. Here's this little girl, having been prepared, having heard of the power of God at work in Elisha, believing in that power, even though he hadn't used that power to keep her from being stolen, from being enslaved. And yet you see her faith. 
desiring that Naaman would be healed at the hands of Elisha. And her faith is in stark contrast, isn't it, to the king of Israel, probably Jehoram, not named here in this story. You see it there in verse 6 and 7. When Naaman comes to him with a, a letter of recommendation and a request from King Ben-Hadad of Syria, Jehoram instantly jumps to the conclusion that Ben-Hadad is just after war. He just wants to, to have an occasion right, to, to invade and to, to fight with Israel. Of course, Ben-Hadad had sent Naaman to the king because that's where he assumed prophets would be, in the, you know, the company of the king, there in the king's palaces. Jehoram doesn't get it. Jehoram doesn't even think of Elisha. He doesn't even think of God's power through Elisha. And so Elisha re rebukes him and rebukes his unbelief there in verse 8. He uses language that's reminiscent of, of even the girl's wish for Naaman. Now again, remember, the first readers of this book were in exile. Where? In Babylon. They were slaves. Right? They should have seen a flashing neon sign around this story. Look around you, it was saying. You are there, surrounded by the world. Right? You're not in your home country. You're exiles. But what can you do while you're there? You can point people to the only God, the only true God, the only Savior. Now, brothers and sisters, how much more ought we to trust the Lord when we find ourselves in dark circumstances, not only have we heard of this little girl's faith, but we have heard the story of how God brings salvation to sinners through the death of his son and how he used this motley crew of nobodies in the early church to spread that good news of grace across the Mediterranean world. You see, as you suffer, do you ever think that God may be using your suffering to bring someone to himself? In the same way that he did with Naomi's life, bringing Ruth to himself through the bitter suffering and sorrow of Naomi. It's so easy, isn't it, to grow angry toward the Lord, to grow bitter toward the Lord and toward others for the situations in which we find ourselves, to, to jump immediately to bad conclusions like Jehoram did because we refuse to believe that God is at work. How easy it is to fail to, to witness to the goodness of God, the grace of God in the midst of our tragedies. But this story is reminding us that God's ways are strange. And so let it not be strange to us that God's ways are strange. How does the apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13? He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. God's ways are strange. First, a second, though, we see in this text that God's ways are humbling. You notice that Naaman and his chariot entourage make their way to Elisha's house. They knock on the door, but Elisha doesn't come to the door. Rather, he sends his servant, this unnamed messenger, perhaps Gehazi, as we'll see next week, to tell Naaman what to do, namely, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. The Jordan River is about 25 miles right to the east. If you go wash in that Jordan River, you'll be cured. Now, Naaman's hospitality doesn't please Naaman. Elisha's hospitality doesn't please Naaman at all, does it? He's furious. He leaves in a huff. You, you, you look at his words. You see how he thinks God should operate, but you see how God does operate. Behold, he says, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Naaman is displaying his deep-rooted pride, thinking too highly of himself. 
and thinking that God's healing must conform to his own imagination. His skin disease is merely a reflection of his heart disease, and God's ways humble him. Naaman first needed to learn that he could not dictate to God how he should be doing things. Naaman had showed up with his money, with his script. All right, here's how I expect things to be done. Let's get this healing going. One commentator, a man named Ray Dillard, puts it well. He says, Naaman expected Israel's God and prophet to be just like what he had known at home, itching palms and magic shows. He had brought plenty of money, all right? He expected the prophet to deliver the magic. Naaman wanted vending machine grace, Dillard says. Put your money in, take out your blessing. But when Elisha's cure is to go wash in the muddy Jordan, he goes ballistic. What sort of simplistic cure is this? The the, the rivers of of Syria are much better than the rivers of of Israel. God doesn't let human expectation dictate the way that he operates, you see. For God wants the glory to come to him, not to Elisha, not to Naaman, not to some mumbo-jumbo hand-waving. God's ways humble our pride the pride of thinking that we can control him by superstition or that we know better than God how God should work. But more deeply, God humbles Naaman's pride, the pride of thinking so highly of himself. You see, in the Hebrew, when, when, when Naaman says, I, I thought that he would come out to me, actually the words to me are brought forward in that sentence for emphasis. To me, I thought he would come out. Does he not know who I am? Surely he should know that I am naming the great Syrian general. Who does this inferior Israelite prophet think that he is? You see, Naaman did not believe what the author of Kings tells us in verse 2. By Naaman, Yahweh, the Lord, had given victory to Syria. Think about this. Naaman attributes his victories to himself, perhaps to his gods. But the God who is sovereign over the circumstances of a little Israelite girl is also sovereign over the rise and the fall of nations. He was the one who had given Naaman the victory. He was the one who had given Naaman this exalted status. In God's eyes, and so therefore in Elisha's eyes, Naaman was nothing. And he needed to realize that. He needed to become like a little child in order to be saved. You may remember that Nebuchadnezzar, there in Babylon, where the first readers of this book were, he also needed to learn that lesson, didn't he? Daniel chapter 4, verses 32 and 37 remind us that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. All of his works are right. All of his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. See, God's ways are humbling ways. They humble our pride of thinking that we are something when we are really nothing. Isn't this how God worked with the apostle Paul when he had received those incredible revelations of paradise, the third heaven? God gives him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Why? To keep him from exalting himself, from becoming conceited, the text says. And Paul says it twice, to keep me from becoming conceited. And God still works in this way. He sees our hearts. He knows when we are trusting in ourselves that we are righteous and looking down on others with contempt. 
He knows when we are thinking too highly of ourselves. And he ordains the events of our lives to make us and to keep us humble, to make us and to keep us dependent, to make us and to keep us childlike in faith. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then the only way for you to be saved from the wrath of God that is to come, the only way for you to know peace with God, the only way for you to be reconciled with God is for God to show you that you are a sinner, that you need salvation, and that you are unable to do anything to save yourself. You're powerless to pay for your own sin. You're impotent to achieve the righteousness that God demands. You're so used to relying on yourself for everything, but God has to show you and will show you if he intends to save you, that your salvation comes only by relying on another, on the the death of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus, his sinless life and his undeserved death, bearing God's punishment in the place of, of all who trust in him. That's the only thing that can reconcile sinners to a holy God. God's ways are humbling. And unless you have been humbled by God, you are not saved. Unless you become like a little child, you do not know the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. God's ways are humbling. Finally, though, God's ways are gracious. I've just said that you must be humbled, and we want you to be humbled. We want you to know peace with God. We want you to know salvation. And by the grace of God, the power of God, you can. For you see, here in this story, we learn that that God's ways are gracious. After Naaman heeds the advice of his servants to wash in the Jordan River, he, he was instantly healed. Far away from the prophet, far away from the king, it is clear to him that God is the one who has accomplished this healing. And so Naaman returns. Right, you think of the story of the lepers right, who were healed by Jesus. And who is it that returns? The Samaritan. And here it is, the Syrian returning to God, returning to his prophet but he's also returning with a confession of faith and with a lot of money, right? He wants to present this gift to Elisha, probably over 700 pounds of silver, 120 pounds of gold, clothes made from the finest materials. And yet Elisha refuses. Why? Primarily because he doesn't want Naaman to think that God's grace was for sale. He doesn't want Naaman to think that he was only in this for the money. Grace is free. The rich don't have a a shortcut to glory. There was no room for boasting. Naaman hadn't been asked to do a great thing, just go wash in a muddy river. Nor was Naaman asked to furnish a large sum of money in order to be healed. No, God healed him freely to display his grace and display his glory. So we see the grace of God in the fact that that, that Elisha refuses to take Naaman's money. God's grace is not for sale. But we also see the grace of God in this matter of, of Naaman having to go into the house of Rimmon, the god of the Syrians, with his king. He's not going to be worshiping Rimmon, he says, but he is going to be worshiping in the house of Rimmon, but he's going to be worshiping Yahweh, and even on Yahweh's own dirt, or perhaps he, he wants the dirt in order to build a, an altar to worship Yahweh on. Now, some commentators would see in Naaman's words and his request a a sort of a half-heartedness, a compromise, an insincerity to his faith. But Elisha's answer seems to point us in another direction, that God was graciously covering his sin. 
I agree with Ralph Davis, right, who says that we see here a sensitive conscience, something that the Baal-worshipping Israelites didn't have a clue about. This text certainly should not lead us to think that total transformation doesn't matter. But remember where we are and when we are in redemptive history. We're in the Old Covenant. During the days of Israel's kingdom, here is Naaman, this God-fearing Gentile who's living now in a pagan land, who's going to be trying to live out this new salvation far away from Israel, the the centralized place of, of God's purposes and worship. And doesn't that remind us that God's grace is shown most clearly in this text in the fact of who Naaman was, a Syrian, a Gentile, the enemy of God's people. Here is God saving one of his enemies, one of the enemies of his people. Here is a Syrian making a confession of faith that the vast majority of Israelites in this day and age would have refused to make. God's ways are gracious. They are free, which means they are sovereign. They're sovereign. God's not under compulsion to save anyone. And he often saves those we least expect. You remember that in Luke 4, Jesus brings up Naaman, doesn't he? He brings up Naaman and the widow of Zarephath from 1 Kings chapter 17. And he intends to make this very point. There were lots of widows in Israel, Jesus says. There were lots of lepers in Israel, Jesus says. But God only sent his prophets to a Gentile widow, to a Gentile leper. And do you remember the response of the people in Luke 4? They were infuriated. The same rage that filled Naaman's heart before his conversion. They were filled with rage. They they get up from the synagogue. They drive Jesus to the, 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 the brow of the hill and want to throw him off. And Jesus passes through. It's not his time to die yet. But the freeness, the sovereignty of grace, saving some and leaving others in their unbelief like the king of Israel here, saving people we would least expect or desire to be saved, it often brings to the surface an anger in the hearts of those who think that they have deserved their salvation or think that they have earned their salvation. Remember the elder brother in Luke 15 who was so angry that his father would receive back the younger brother so angry that he would throw a feast for him. Luke 15 is a picture of the Pharisees when Jesus brings the gospel to sinners. You see, God's ways are gracious. They are free. They leave no room for boasting and they burst out to save sinners, men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Even Southern Bible Belt nominal Christians, even Muslims and Jews and Hindus and animists, as we heard this morning, even secular postmodern Westerners who've rejected any thought of heaven or hell, of a God who would bring judgment upon his creation, certainly any thought of a creator. Right? God can save anyone because he's a God of grace. God's ways are gracious. God's ways are strange. God's ways are humbling. And these ways of God are his calling card, aren't they? Right? We see his tracks as we go throughout life. And when we see them, when we see something strange, when we see something humbling, when we experience something strange or humbling or gracious, we know that God is on the move. We know that God is at work. And so when you see it in your life, when you see it in the life of someone around you, be in prayer, be expectant. Know that the Lord, the Lord, he is God. And he is working his sovereign purposes out 
for his glory and for the good of his elect. And he is doing that so that he might bring in all manner of people to worship his son and the power of his spirit. And so we come to this story and we rejoice that our God who is who he says he is. Let's pray. Well, Father, we ask that you would bring to yourself, draw powerfully to Jesus Christ, your son, by your spirit, all of those that you have chosen from before the foundation of the world and do it in ways that really don't make sense to us in ways that humble pride in ways that display the glory of your grace. Father, we thank you for Naaman. We look forward to the day when we will meet him in glory. We look forward to the day when we will meet this little Israelite girl in glory and we will be able to rejoice in your strange, humbling, gracious ways together. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for being our savior. We know we do not deserve it. Oh Lord, would you help us to be bold to bring the good news of your gospel, of your strange, humbling grace to sinners even now. Oh Lord, we ask that you would come and do what only you can do. Through Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen.